0: Luke chapter number 14, if you have your Bible, and then also Matthew chapter number 5, and you can follow along on your iPhone, your iPad, or you could use your eyelids because it's going to go up on the screen in just a second. Luke chapter number 14, verse number 23, the Bible says, Then the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and hedges, and just to make that relevant, that means go to where you work. Go into your neighborhoods, go to the stores that you frequent, the places that you hang out with, like when your kids are are at sporting events. That's your highways. Those are your hedges. And notice, and compel them to come in that my house may be full. Then in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 13, the Bible says, You are the salt of the earth. You ever hear that expression, people talk about somebody, that's a good Joe, and they'll say, oh, they're just salt of the earth. I don't know if that's what Jesus had in mind, but notice, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. "...nor do they take the light and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works, and glorify your Father who is in heaven." Today we are continuing in our series, This Is Us, where we are taking a behind the scenes, what we like to call a raw and a real look at what our lives should look like as we claim to be Christ followers. What are those defining characteristics? And we're kind of exploding and blowing up the myth that that Christianity is a tool to get what we want. That's how most people look at Christianity, right? It's like you know, I get saved so that so that God can bless me and God can prosper me and God can advance me and God can make me happy. And make no mistake about it, God wants to do all those things, right? God is a good daddy, he loves to bless his kids with all sorts of good things, and even more than you and I, I like to bless our children. But that's that, not the purpose of Christianity. We we're not uh, using God as our tool. Matter of fact, the purpose of Christianity is for for God to use us as His tool. We are here for his pleasure. He's not here for our pleasure. And this may seem elementary, but it's so important because once we get into a lifestyle of Christianity that is always focused on God bless me, God prosper me, God give to me, God advance me, and it doesn't happen like we want it to, then we become disillusioned with Christianity. And it's like, well, tried church, tried God, you know, tried the Jesus thing, didn't work for me, I'm over it type of thing. And it's because it's the wrong message of Christianity. And so what we're focusing on is, is how we should ever our Christianity in this series and so maybe we should change our prayers to instead of God bless me and God prosper me and God do this for me and that for me maybe it should be God use me and God used me to, to bless more people, and God used me to lead people to Jesus. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about how you and I can be salt and light against the cultural backdrop of today, which is ever-shifting and ever-changing. And I want to talk to you in, in this message that I've called Salty Shine." And the reason why I call this salty shine is, is not because after a workout, you know, you have that sweat and, you know, you kiss your spouse and like, taste salty. It's not that kind of salty shine, but I'm talking about the kind of, of, of shine and the kind of salt that you and I should possess as Christians that compels people to want to come to Jesus. And so let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to realize that, that we are here to be exactly what you said, to be salt in this world and to be light in this earth, we pray that in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. Salt makes people thirsty, salt adds flavor, salt preserves. Light enables us to see, it dispels darkness and, and it exposes things. And so, what did Jesus have in mind when he said, You are the salt? of the earth and you are the light of the world. I think he means that our lives are supposed to create a thirst in other people for Jesus that enables them to see, to see their need for a savior. And they get pulled out of darkness, the darkness of sin, and they are empowered to walk in the light of eternal life. And, and so the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I want you to ponder as you're kind of listening to this, this message is, is who are you making thirsty for Jesus. Has that even entered into your uh, kind of Christian? paradigm and perspective, that that you need to be making somebody thirsty for Jesus? Who who is it that your light is affecting for Christ? Have you thought about that lately, or have you become so engrossed in a Christianity that looks inwardly that you have forgotten that our real purpose, once we give our lives to Jesus Christ, is to be ambassadors for Christ, to be salt and light to this lost world. And so I really want to bring that to the forefront, because that is our mission. That is our essential mission as Christians. It's not about what God can do for us. It's But it's about what God can do through us. And so that is our focus. But let's face it, it is difficult in this culture, to be salt and light. And the reason why it's difficult in this culture to be salt and light is because in this culture, the truth is ever-changing, isn't it? This is a culture now of relative truth, and this is a culture of social truth, and this is a a culture of, of even sometimes crazy truth. Maybe you saw it this week. There was this guy... He lives in the Netherlands, and he has petitioned the court to change his legal age on his birth certificate. He's 69 years old, but he said he feels like a 49-year-old, and because he identifies as a 49-year-old, that he wants his, his birth certificate to be changed so that he could be 49. And he, he went before the court, and he told the court how he went to the doctors, and the doctors even have confirmed that he has the body and the heart of a 49-year-old. And so because the doctor said so and because he feels so that he thinks it should be legally changed so he can be 49 and not 69 this is facts this is reality right this is what what he thinks should be the case and then he proceeded when he was in the court to tell them you know i'll even defer my retirement for 20 years and he said and 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 the netherlands is no place for a 69 year old and here's what he said he said whenever i put my age on tinder Nobody comments. But when I put 49, I get all sorts of hits. And so I thought to myself, is the reality that he's just a dirty old man that wants to date younger women? And if that's his case, all he needs to do is move to California where somebody who's got money and old can date all the younger women they want. That was funny. I don't care what y'all (laughs) say. We live in a time of relative truth, right? We live in a time of social truth. We live in a time of crazy truth. And so it becomes hard as a Christian to be salt and light against that kind of backdrop. Matter of fact, the dilemma is that if we stand for truth, then we're hated, might be labeled as intolerant or outdated or one of those narrow-minded Christians. So we back off, we keep our opinions to ourselves, and we, we have the philosophy, well, it just doesn't matter as long as everybody is happy because after all that's really what God is after God is after our happiness now make no mistake about it God wants us to be happy right who what parent doesn't want their children to be happy but can I tell you something as a parent when my children are doing wrong I don't want them to be happy in their wrong. Because then they become delusioned into thinking that that wrong is right, right? So the highest goal that God has is not our happiness, even though He wants us to be happy, but we have bought into and we have subscribed to this philosophy that that's really all that matters in life, and right and wrong really don't matter at all in life. And, and we, and we kind of have this dilemma because when we take that stand in order to kind of blend in and be accepted in society and all that, there's this other side, there's this nagging kind of feeling on the inside that we are somehow being unfaithful, to God, and we are compromising truth, and so there's this dilemma of salt and light. How do we do it in a culture that has this this relative truth? How do we, like our opening text says, compel people to come to Christ? And, and if this word "compel" can actually mean to force people, it can mean that. That's one of the definitions of it. Kind of reminds me of it, and, and, and you guys might remember it. Uh, there was this little little boy in our in our in our church that we grew up in. His name was JJ. He was about three or four years old, and he was learning in Sunday school about how God wanted to use our lives to to lead other people to Christ and to be a witness. And, And so J.J. would like kind of be in the front of the sanctuary, and if a kid walked into the auditorium that was around his age or his size, he would run to him full speed, launch himself in the air, tackle them on the ground, get on top and say, do you know Jesus? believe in scaring the hell out of people. I mean, and these kids are looking at it just like, you know, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind, right? When he talked about compelling people to come to Jesus, I think Jesus was talking about our life being contagious. Our life being so contagious and so evident of the goodness of God and evident of the love of Christ that other people want what we have. Matter of fact, Philippians chapter 1, 6 in one version of the Bible says this, I pray that everybody who comes into contact with you, everybody who meets you catches your faith here's my question for you is anybody catching your faith When's the last time somebody caught your faith? And if it's not even on your radar yet, that's exactly why I'm preaching this message. Because I believe with all my heart that this aspect, this important, this priority of Christianity has fallen off off the radar for most Christians. As we become self-absorbed in leading our own lives and we forget about the fact that we are supposed to be salt and light in this lost world. So how do you and I become salt and light? How do we do that against the cultural backdrop of today, of relative truth and no truth and whatever your truth is, as long as it makes you happy? And I can think of no better example of this in all of Scripture than that of Daniel. Daniel was somebody who lived during a time when they had a lot of crazy truth, too. Matter of fact, he lived during a time when they were all sorts of, uh, they were polytheistic. They believed in all sorts of god, all, all, gods, all sorts of different uh, truths. And there was this one guy who was even crazier than the dude that wanted his birth certificate changed to 49. This is one guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And this guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, his delusion was he thought he was God. Not just that he was 20 years younger. He thought he was God. Seriously, like not like, not not the same way you and I think that we're God. You're like, Pastor, I don't think that I'm God. Yes, you do. I promise you this. Every time you think you get to call your own shots to your life, you think you're God. Every time you think that something that God has said in his word doesn't really apply to you, you think that you're God every time you try to and I try to manipulate outcomes to, to be the way that we want them to we're, we're stepping in the shoes and we're playing God but I'm not talking about that kind of God delusion this guy's God delusion was so much worse than that this guy literally thought he was God here's the reason why it was during this period of time called, known as the Neo Babylonian Empire and during this period of time Nebuchadnezzar would go into different lands and he would try to conquer them and all of them he did and, and he'd always notice that these people believed in these gods. And here's what he would say to himself. He would say, if their God is really God, then their God ought to be able to protect them from me. I won't be able to conquer this land if their God is truly God, because he'll be stronger than me. And he would go in there, and nobody was able to prevent, no God was able to prevent their people from being captured, and so Nebuchadnezzar would conclude, well, then I'm God, because I'm stronger than all of their gods. Matter of fact, what he would do is he would capture their God, which was usually some type of graven or golden image, right? And he would bring it into his own shrine room in his palace, and every morning or however often he did it, he'd walk in there, and he'd walk to and he'd say, I captured that God and that God and that God and that God and that God. And guess what? I'm stronger than all of those gods, so guess who I am? I'm God. He really believed that he was God. And one of the last lands that he captured was the land of Judah. And when he captured the land of Judah, there were some people that he captured, some some kids that he captured. Daniel chapter 1, verse number 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Verse 6 says, Now from those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now most of us don't remember their names as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah because they were given new names once they were in the Babylonian Empire. And so we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you watch Tales, Shadrach and Benny, right? That's That's the famous one. But they were, that was not their original name. And Now, here's my point, though, is that Daniel was captured and thrust into a culture that was much worse than our culture is. You know, a lot of times we talk about how bad culture is and how, you know, obscure and crazy culture is getting. Biblical culture was even more wheels off in many cases and, and especially prior to Christ and in this environment, they had all sorts of crazy philosophies. But yet he lived in this culture, which was a bow down culture and yet he stood up, he refused to compromise and instead of being affected by culture, instead of changing his belief system, instead of changing what, what he knew was truth, Daniel was able to not be affected by culture but yet to influence culture and if you read through the whole book of daniel which you can do in your spare time daniel affected four kings that he served under all four kings at least considered daniel's god to be the true god and he led a few of them to actually be believers in god jehovah who we know is jesus christ now right one of them was this crazy King Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was God. The reason why he came to Christ is because Daniel was salt and light, and Daniel proved to him that there was a God that was stronger than him. Now, it kind of shows us that even in a culture that looks like nobody's searching for God, people are. People are looking for what's real. People want to know. Do we really serve a God that makes a difference? They're searching for a God who is real and tangible. They're searching for a God who is more powerful than their addictions. They're searching for a God who's more powerful than their sorrows, more powerful than their struggles, more powerful than their insecurities and their hopelessness. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was searching for a God that was more powerful than him. Is there a God out there that can stop me? By the way, I believe God is speaking to some of you right now. and God's saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to save you from you. How many of you know God is a God that saves us from us? We are sometimes our worst enemy. And so Daniel becomes an influence. He becomes salt and light in this culture. How do you do it? How can we do it? I want to give you a few keys for how we can become salt and light against the crazy culture, backdrop of the crazy culture that we live in. Number one on your outline, if we're going to be salt and light, if we're going to have a salty shine, we're going to have to settle why we are here. Settle why we're here. I mean, think about Daniel for a moment. Daniel could thought of, you know, I'm here because, you know, I'm, I, it's against my will. I'm here because I was captured. I'm, I'm here, you know, as a, as a, because life didn't work out the way I wanted it to. I'm here because my God was not stronger than Nebuchadnezzar. I'm here because my God failed. I'm here because circumstances are, 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 just took a, a bad term. I'm here because life is unfair. I'm here because of, of just horrible reasons. And he could have bemoaned the unfairness of how it all was. But instead, one of the things that you notice as you peer into the life of Daniel is Daniel didn't look at his circumstances through that lens. Here's what Daniel understood. He said, I'm here to be salt and light. Uh, here's where I am at this particular moment, and what I'm going to do is I'm not going to look at all the negative circumstances that are around me. I'm not going to look at all the theology behind how I got here. I'm not going to look at the fact that maybe the devil did something in my life, and that's where I'm here. I'm not going to look at the fact that maybe I made some bad choices, and that's when I'm, where I'm here. I'm not going to look at through the fact that maybe God put me here. I'm not going to. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just say I'm here to be salt and light to all those who need Jesus. How would that change your outlook? How would that change your outlook if you looked at every situation? And instead of bemoaning why you're there, you just said, you know what? I'm here. I got here for all sorts of reasons. Some reasons I know. Some reasons I don't know. But here's why I'm here. I'm going to be salt in life. Don't know why I got the demotion, but I'm going to be salt in life. Don't know why I got the promotion, but I'm going to be salt in life. Life is not going as good as I want, and I'm here. I'm going to be salt in life. Life is going amazing. I'm going to be salt in life. How would your life change? If you just said the reason why you're there is to influence some people. There's always going to be people around you in whatever circumstance that you're in in life. And maybe the reason why you're in the situation that you're in is just to be salt and light. Daniel knew this. One of the things that I know is that, you know, there are certain things that make God really happy. And one thing that makes God happier than anything else. And, and, and I don't know about you, but as Christians, I, I believe we all live to please God. How many How of that's your goal, you just want to please God? Look at people like, how do I not raise my hand, Pastor? If I don't raise my hand, everybody thinks I'm just a terrible Christian. Well, the fact of the matter is truth be told, not everybody could actually raise their hand there because you'd be lying. Right? There's some people who really don't live their life to please God. Let's face it, most of the church doesn't really live their life to please God. Most of the church lives their life for God to please them. Can I just be real with you? This is going to be so good. It's going to get so good. It can just keep going here. We're, we're blowing up some myths right now. We're, we're getting us back to biblical Christianity instead of this farce of Christianity that we have created because God is a blesser. We have, we have taken that to an extreme that's unhealthy. And so most of, the, most of us want to, though, live our lives, you know, to please God. At least we theoretically think we do. And what pleases God more than anything else is when people get saved. Matter of fact, Luke chapter 15, verse number 10 says, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. There is joy in the presence of the angel of God, angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now here's how most people teach that. Most people teach that that the angels get all excited when somebody gets saved. That's not what that scripture says. It says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. Well, who's in the presence of the angels of God? God Himself. Who's getting so excited when one sinner gets saved? God is. See, here's what we need to understand, that what makes God happiest is when you and I our salt, and when you and I are light, and because of our salt, we make people thirsty for Jesus, and because of our light, people are led to Jesus. That's what gets God so excited. If we truly want to want to please God, we ought to settle the fact. If we truly want to influence culture, we ought to settle the fact that we're where we are, whatever where is for you, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whether it's a circumstance where you are having much success or whether you are failing, whatever that circumstance is, how about just looking at it from the perspective in my situation in all things I am going to glorify God in all things I'm going to let my light shine in all things I'm going to be salt in all things I'm going to be light how about that perspective Daniel had that perspective how else can we be salt or light number two we need to stay unspotted go back to the capture of Daniel and his three Hebrew friends By the way, that's what society, culture is really after, the capture of our faith. Because if society can capture faith, then the enemy of our soul can move the world in the direction that he wants it to, can bring more people to hell with him. Hell was never created for people. It was created for the enemy, the devil, and his cohorts. But people go there when they don't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's facts. I know we don't like to admit that today. You know, are you saying Jesus is the only way to get to God? Yes, I am saying that. Why? How could you say that? That is so narrow-minded. To think that there's many ways to get to God, how confusing is that? A good leader, by the way, how many of you like to serve under good leaders? How many of you like to serve under good leaders? What if a leader just told you, you know, any way you want to get your job done, just get it done. And then you did it one way, and they were like, I, I can't believe you did it that way you be like, well, you said anyway. Oh, uh, you know, whatever. Go ahead and do it. And no, that's not the way you do it. Oh, well, can you please tell me the way you do it? How many of you know great leadership is when somebody says, this is what I need you to do. Go ahead and do that. And when you do it that way, you get a pat on the back and say, great job, right? You know what to expect. How good of a God would God be if God said, just uh, you know, figure it out. in the old way to get to heaven, you get to heaven. And aren't you glad that God said, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me? He's giving us a clear way to get to heaven. Right? So, second thing, though, we need to do is we need to stay unspotted because culture is trying to capture our faith in every way. Daniel chapter 1, verse number 3. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach, notice this, the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of the time they might serve before the king. Now among them were of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice what happened. They brought them into their culture and they taught them the literature and the language. What were they? For three years free of charge. Three years of training, free of charge with all the wine and all the food you can have. Sounds like America. Free college for everybody and let's all drink. (laughs) Did I just say that? Oops, sorry. I didn't mean to say that. Right? What was the purpose? And this is not, I'm just making a joke about America, not necessarily the same thing here. But here's what I mean. What was the purpose of it in the Scripture? The purpose of it was to indoctrinate them into the Chaldean way so they would forget about the God Jehovah way. So they would forget about the way they think. They would forget about their truth. They would forget about what they know is right and what they know is wrong. Because here's what the enemy is after. The enemy is after our thinking, If the enemy can indoctrinate us into believing a certain kind of way, then we will not be the salt and light that God has called us to be. And one of the ways that the enemy does this is through indoctrination. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And so what they try to do is they try to bring Daniel and his three friends into their uh, empire but then they try to strip them of everything by teaching them literature and by teaching them the language matter of fact they went so deep in their indoctrination that they actually gave them new names daniel chapter 1 verse number 7 to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names he gave daniel the name Beltejar to hananiah shadrach to mishael meshach and to azariah abednego why did they give them new names strip them of their identity See, this is what the culture is after to strip us of what really is the truth of the word of God. Because if we forget about that, we lose our saltiness. If we forget about that, we lose our light. And so what do we do? How do we not get indoctrinated? We, we stay unspotted. James chapter 1, verse number 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep, watch this, oneself unspotted from the world. It's an interesting verse of scripture, isn't it? You don't hear that kind of preaching anymore, do you? Ah, don't worry. God loves you anyway. doesn't really matter what you do. God loves you anyway. God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. You don't hear this idea of living a holy and set-apart life. Pure religion, pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, which, by the way, one of the things we're doing in our in our kind of emphasized focus in the next decade of just meeting needs and, and, and ministering to people at a grassroots level is we're bringing back an old-school ministry. How many has been in church their whole life or for a long period of time? Can I see your hand? How many's not? How many's kind of, kind of new to Christianity thing, you know? All right. Well, some of you may know about something that used to be called the deacon's ministry, right? Deacon's ministry, it, it was never right, by the way, in old church. Old church, deacons were the people who, who, like, bossed the pastor around, right? In old church, deacons were the ones that everybody voted in, in the, and then they kind of ran the church. By the way, you'll never find that definition of a deacon in, in the scripture. It's not in the scripture. People who, are, who run the church in Scripture, they're called elders. And elders, you'll also find in the Scripture, are never voted in. They're always appointed. Now watch, but that's not my point, right? Just, just a little church theology for you. One of the things you'll realize is that deacons, they chose them in the book of Acts, that Stephen was a deacon, is a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, who was chosen to take care of the widows and wait tables. So deacons are not like, you know, large and in charge. De- deacons are low, lowly servants. Right? And so we're going to start a deacon's ministry. Now that you know what a deacon is, I wonder how many people are actually going to volunteer for the deacon's ministry. Right? If it was, if I just said, hey, we're going to have a deacon's ministry, what I should have done is everyone, I want to be a deacon. You know, I want to be a deacon. So everybody could, because back in old church, everyone would come up to you and say, hey, I'm a deacon of the church. Because they were so proud that they could boss everybody around. You know? I should have just let everybody think it was that and then got everybody together and said, okay, now you all are going to go serve tables and you're going to go help widows out and you're going to you know, meet needs and stuff of that nature. But that's what it was, right? Pure religion is to visit the orphans and the widows. But notice, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What is God saying? He's saying when we compromise in the way that we live our lives, when we compromise, when we become. So like the world and the way that we live, we lose our light and we lose our saltiness. And notice what happens with Daniel. Daniel's, you know, he's got this, this free college that he's going to go to. All the wine. He's a teenager. He can drink for free and eat all the food that he wants for free. You would think he'd be like, yeah, awesome. But notice Daniel and three Hebrew children. Verse number eight. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank, Therefore, he requested of the chief priests and eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, can I give you just a couple of things here? Number one is the reason why he didn't want the meat, it was meat, and, and the wine was not because it's bad to eat meat. So everybody talks, oh, the Daniel diet is the biblical diet. I can only eat vegetables because that's what the Bible says. No, it was, it was, it was sacrificed to idols. And so he would not eat it because it's fine if you want to be a vegetarian, by the way. And you'll probably be more healthy, you know, if you balance things right, eat more vegetables than you do meat. But I just need to confess to you, I'm a meatitarian, I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> All right. And so so Daniel says, I can't have this because this this was sacrificed to another god. If I eat this stuff, if I drink this stuff, what is happening to me is I'm defiling myself. And so he said, the the eunuch said, well, you're going to get me in trouble because if you're not healthy and the king sees you, he's going to hang me. And Daniel said, give me 10 days. Look at this, Daniel chapter 1, verse number 15. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who had the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they would have drank and gave them vegetables and these four young men God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams verse 19 then the king interviewed them and among them all none was found like Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah therefore they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them he found them watch this Ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who are in the realm. Can I tell you what living an unspotted life does? It makes your light shine much brighter than everybody else's. See, God's way is better. We think, you know, that we can just kind of, you know, kind of get as close to the world as we possibly can and still maintain our Christianity. And the sad thing that Christians ask themselves on a regular basis is, how close can I get to wrong without actually doing wrong? That is a horrible question. We should be saying, you know, how much can I live for Christ? We shouldn't be worried about, you know, how close we can, how much like the world. When you become like the world, you blend in with the world, and you're not a light anymore, and you're not salt anymore, and that is your purpose. And so the way to be salt and light, this is why Daniel influenced that whole kingdom, kings and everything, because he refused to be spotted by the world things. Listen, just because the world says it's okay doesn't mean it's okay. Just because the world legalizes it, doesn't mean it's right. Let me say that one again. Because we have this idea, you know, that the world gets to dictate to us what what is right and what is wrong. The world won't put you in jail for adultery. There's no law against adultery. You can commit all the adultery you want. Is that right? What makes you say it's not right? You know from the Word of God that it's not right. We we don't let the world dictate to us what is right and wrong. We remain unspotted from the world. This is what we need to understand is the life, the mark of a Christian. But number three, if we are going to be salt and light in the world, we must stand firm. Nebi is impressed, by the way, with Daniel and his three Hebrew friends. He's like, they got something. They're, I don't know why, but they are 10 times smarter than everybody else. I mean, there's clearly something going on in their life. He's becoming a little thirsty based on what he sees in their life. Their light is starting to, starting to shine on him, but he still thinks he's God. By the way, did you know that one time, um, a one-time try to let your light shine before somebody, probably not going to do nothing. You're there with your friends, some of you college kids, young men and women. You're there with your friends, and everybody's smoking a joint, and you go, no, 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 I'm a Christian. You think, now they're all going to get saved. Because <laughs> I, I took a stand. They're all going to get saved now. They're not going to get saved. You know why? They want to see. That's one thing. you got to let your light shine and let your light shine and let your light shine and let your salt get on them. And and it has to be a consistent thing. So Nebi is starting to see it, but he's not ready yet. He still thinks that he's God. And so he decides to make this 90-foot statue, and he says to everybody, listen, when you hear the music playing, you'll have to bow down and worship me. And remember, he thinks he's God because no other God was able to stop him. Let's read about it. Daniel chapter 3, verse number 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Then at the time you hear the sound, everybody say sound, Sound. of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and the symphony with all kinds of music. You shall fall down and worship the gold image. Everybody say image. Image. Sound. Say sound. Say image. One more time. Sound. Image. Image. He shall worship the gold image that the King Nebuchadnezzar set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar tried to reframe truth. The truth he was trying to reframe is that you don't serve a true God. I'm God. How do you do it? Through sound, through image. Can I tell you how our culture tries to reframe truth? Through the constant messaging That is adverse to the truth of the scripture and the constant imaging that is adverse to the truth, truth of the scripture. And so you constantly will hear messaging and messaging over and over and over again. And the messaging will be like, yeah, I know you all think that, but this is really what is, what is right. I know that's your belief, but you know what? That's antiquated. That's outdated. That's not progressive enough, right? And all of this will be th- constantly, constantly, constantly. And 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 to believe otherwise, the messaging is, is you are somehow some kind of intolerant person who doesn't love other people. That's the messaging that is constant over and 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 over, and over, and over again, right? And the, the imaging is now you see on TV what you would have never saw on TV years ago. Why? Because the enemy is after reframing truth. This is not, by the way, a conspiracy on the part of a political party or on the part of a certain group of people. You know, everybody got these conspiracies. No, it's not. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places. It is an intentional attack by the enemy of our soul in order to reframe truth in our hearts and our minds so that we will not be salt in life, light. You missed a good place to say Amen. So there's the reframing through sound and through image, through sound and through image, because the enemy is after your thoughts. If the enemy can get you to think a certain way, he can stop you from being what God wants you to be. That's why the Bible says, Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good. Acceptable and perfect will of God. How do you find out what God says is true? You have to renew your mind from what? From the sound and the images that the culture is presenting to the truth of what the Word of God says. That's how you prove what God wants. It's not a matter of what is popular at the moment, it's a matter of what does God say about the situation. And so um, they are put, this challenge is put out to them. You need to, you need to, you need to bow. Culture, by the way, always demands an answer. The more you let your light shine, the more people will ask you, what do you say about this? What does the Bible say about this? Some of those questions will be sincere, and some of those questions will be insincere. And you have to judge whether it's the right time to answer those questions. Because I'm going to show you in just a little while, you just don't spout off truth. Because truth can be mean. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. And so what does Daniel do? He takes a stand. What does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego They take a stand. Verse number 13 of chapter 3, Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury. That's what happens when you don't go along with the truth of society. They come at you with rage and fury in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. In other words, I'll give you another chance. How many of you know you'll have to make several stands You can't just stand once for God and think, well, I did my Christian duty. It's a permanent stand. When you've done all to stand, stand, therefore, the Bible says. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who, notice the question, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Culture is demanding us to take a stand. Here's my question. Will you stand for God and potentially experience uncomfortable backlash or compromise so that you can remain comfortable. What do they say? Verse number 16, Sharach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, if you throw us into the burning fiery furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you if you don't throw us in. Let it be, If you give us another chance, let it be known to you that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Notice what they did. They took a stand. Taking a stand, by the way, it requires courage, doesn't it? It requires courage to take a stand. You have to be willing when you take a stand not to be liked. And this is so hard for us because we love to be like. And here's how you take a stand that requires courage. You have faith. You have faith in God. Notice where their faith was. The God we serve is not just able. He not only has the power to, but he also wants to defend us. And he wants to come to our aid. And he wants to stand up for us. And the same God that you think you're stronger than because you captured us, he will stand up for us. If we don't compromise, if we don't bow, we will not burn. God is able to do it. They took a stand. Notice what he asked them. The question Nebuchadnezzar, and who is this God? If I throw you in, who is this God that will save you from me? What is the question he's asking? Listen to me carefully because this is so important. Does your God make a difference when you're in the fire? Here's the question God is asking. Here's the question everybody who you try to influence for Christ is asking. Does your God make a difference when you're in the fire? They don't even care whether you're in the fire or not in the fire because everybody realizes that the fire happens to those that love Jesus and those that don't love Jesus. But here's what they're looking for Does your God make a difference when you're in the fire? What's your joy look like when you're in the fire? What's your peace look like when you're in the fire? What's your mouth look like when you're in the fire? What's your integrity look like when you're in the fire? I want. Nebuchadnezzar is saying will your God make a difference is your God really real prove it to me by how you act when you're in the fire can I submit for your approval that they were not there so that God could deliver them from the fire they were not there so that they could get promoted to a higher position they were not there so they could grow in their influence and their prosperity although all that happened after the fire and that's good news because after the fire good things will come your way but that's not the reason why they were there they were there so that God could use them in the fire in order to minister to the heart of a king who was far from God and prove himself through their life to another king. Why are you here? Why are you in the situation that you're in? I'm not talking about the theology behind it. I'm just talking about the mentality behind it. Maybe you're there because God wants to use you as a tool. Maybe you and I are the tools and God is the master carpenter. Maybe that's what it's all about. He's saying, I want to know, is your God Different. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. They went into the fire. And he rose in haste. Did I miss the scripture? Yes, I think I did. No, I know. Nebuchadnezzar throws him in. <laughs> the king looks in, he's astonished. He rose in haste and he spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True O king, he said, Look what astonishment. Look! I see four men, loose walking in the midst of the fire, they are not hurting. The fourth is like unto the Son of God. Do you know that Jesus didn't appear on the earth for the first time when he was born in a manger? It's called the theophany. These are the times during the Old Testament where God, where Jesus, where the Son, could not help himself. He just had to come and intervene. Here's the way I see it. I see Jesus sitting next to the Father. Go on, let me just go down there and mess with Nebuchadnezzar just a little bit. <laughs> And into the fire he looks, and there he sees the fourth man. And he's like unto the Son of God. Can I encourage somebody right now and let you know that when you live a life that takes a stand for Jesus, Jesus is the fourth man in your fire. He's the one that will walk through you through whatever you're going through. When you're thrown in, God will step in. When you think all hope is lost, God will show up. But you've got to take a stand for Jesus. When we take a stand, notice what happens. That's when we shine the brightest It's interesting to me that when they took that stand, the light of Jesus was seen the most. All of a sudden, Jesus became real to them. Daniel chapter 3, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace. Notice, he took a little step closer to Jesus. See, this is what it's all about. It's all about people looking at our life and taking a step closer to Jesus. And he looked near the burning fiery furnace and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, serve himself. Notice this, the Most High God. There is a God that's higher than me. Do you notice the conversion happening? He said, come out and come here. That Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and and the administrators and governors and king's counselors gathered together, and they saw the men on whose bodies the fire had no power. Their hair on their head was not singed, nor the garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, blessed be. Notice this, this pagan king. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. You know what God is saying right now? Blessed be the Most High God who sent his Son and delivered us from everything that the enemy throws against us in life. They have frustrated the king's word. They took a stand. They yielded their bodies. They were willing to be tools and vessels for God to be glorified. They yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Finally, somebody who proved to me that their God could stop me. I've been searching and I've been looking for the genuine Christian. The genuine Christ follower who would show me that your God, your Jesus really makes A difference. You would think now that Nebuchadnezzar just got saved, but you know what Nebuchadnezzar does? He goes back into the world. And when he goes back into the world and he goes back into his palace and he looks around, he goes, Nah, I'm God still. See, can I just tell you that there's a hold that Satan has on some people's hearts that is so strong that even when Jesus shows up, they still don't convert. But God is reckless in his love. And he loves Nebuchadnezzar so much. And I want to give you this last thing and then we'll be done. The fourth way that you become truth, that you become become salt and light, is to show grace and truth. To show grace and truth. Nebuchadnezzar goes back and he he he's kind of enjoying it and he gets this dream. God gives him a dream. God will chase you down. God will chase you down with a whale. God will chase you down with a dream. God will speak to you from an animal. Remember, he spoke through the ass in the Bible. You don't remember that? Go and listen to my sermon. It's called "Don't Be an Ass." You will love it. It will change your life, right? He spoke to an ass. He spoke through a pig pen. I mean, so many different ways that God comes after us through thoughts that he blesses. And he gives Him a dream. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this big, beautiful tree in the middle of the earth. And the tree is blessing everybody, casting shade for everybody. Animals are perching on it. People are being fed from it. It's wonderful. And all of a sudden, at the end of the dream, the tree is chopped down and only the stump and the root is left. And the dream so impacts him. Then he, he calls in all of his astrologers and musicians to tell me what it means. And nobody would tell him because nobody wanted the king to kill him. So he calls in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4 verse, 12, verse 24. It says, your majesty, the most high God has decreed, and it will surely happen, that your people will chase you from your palace. You will live in the fields like an animal eating grass like a cow. Your back wet and dew from heaven. For seven years, you will. this will be your life until you learn that the Most High God dominates the kingdoms of men and gives power to anyone he chooses. But the stump and the roots were left in the ground. This means that you will get your kingdom back when you have learned that heaven rules. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, listen to me. Stop sinning. Do what you know is right. Be merciful to the poor and perhaps even God will spare you. Notice what he does. He doesn't go in there with guns blazing, straight truth. You're going to go to hell. That's a sin right there. That's a sin right there. You play with God, God's going to burn you in hell. That's a sin right there. That's a sin too right there. You think you're getting away with it, but wait, God's going to get you because God is out to get you. You better turn, otherwise you're going to burn. Some people's mentality. That might all be truth. But do you know what truth without grace is? It's mean. Do you walk up to somebody? Say, you fat. You ugly. You stupid. That might be truth. Right? By the way, can I I tell you a stupid joke? I know. I I heard heard about Jethro and Billy Bob. Jethro and Billy Bob. You heard about them? Billy Bob said, Jethro, what you got there? He says, I got a termus. He said, what'd it do? He said, it keep the cold things cold and the hot things hot. He said, how it know? He said, it just know, it just know. He said, well, what you got in there? He said, I got a bowl of gumbo, two popsicle sticks. <laughs> <laughs> ah, some of you can rewind that and listen up later. Anyway, <laughs> would you walk up to somebody and just tell them that they are fat or Ugly or stupid? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because truth without grace is mean. It's mean to just call out somebody's sin and just say, just because of that, you're going to hell. But grace without truth, listen to me, is meaningless. But grace and truth together, you know what grace and truth together is? Medicine. So what does he do? He tells them, here's what the dream means. The dream means that you've got to get your life right. But the dream also means that God's got a plan for you. The dream means that, yes, you have to repent of your sin and do what's right. But listen to me. The dream also means that when you give your life completely to God, that God's got a restoration plan for you to give you back everything that life has taken from you. It's grace and it's truth. We have fallen into this crazy Christianity. Oh, it doesn't really matter. God loves you. Do whatever you want. Thinking that we're talking about grace. Oh, this crazy Christianity that wants to ridicule everybody for their sin. and Wants to marginalize everybody for their sin. You remember, this is the Jesus way. Grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse number 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. This is how Jesus did it every time he ministered to somebody. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? They threw at Jesus' feet. The law says stoner. In other words, this is what our culture says. What do you say? What did Jesus say? He was without sin, cast the first stone. Everybody dropped their rocks and left. Jesus looked at the woman. He said, where are your accusers? Did anybody condemn you? She says, no. He says, neither do I condemn thee, grace. Go and sin no more. Truth. Grace and truth truth. Notice what Jesus led with. He led with grace. He followed with truth. Lead with grace. Connect before you correct. Connect before you correct. This is how people come to Jesus. Would you stand to your feet? God has called us to be salt and light.